the highest honor any military general in the first century Roman Empire could receive was known as the Roman Triumph. It was a triumph that was reserved only for the best and most select of generals. So a general who had ended a war, a general who had fought and successfully defeated an enemy at a major land battle or sea battle, a general who had successfully slayed 5,000, at least 5,000 of his enemies. And what would happen on this day of the Roman triumph is that the general and this parade that would kind of come into the city, ahead of him would come the magistrates and the senators and the politicians. Following them would be these animals that would soon be slaughtered in these pagan practices of celebration. And then following them would be whatever spoils of war came from this general's conquest. And even captured prisoners would follow them. And then in he would come on his war horse, maybe dressed in gold and purple, toga and tunic, and his right hand would be an olive branch, and his left hand would be an ivory scepter, and next to him would be a slave holding up a golden crown, because it was to symbolize this general was a near king, a near deity in his military success. And then following the general into the city in this triumph were all of his soldiers, soldiers that shouted and sung his praises and his renown, his might and his majesty. And we come to a text today that brings us another triumph in first century Roman Empire. A triumphal entry, we often refer to it in the church. But this, of course, is not the triumphal entry of a king on a war horse. This is the triumphal entry of a king of peace riding on a donkey. This is not a triumphal entry marked by power and wealth. But strikingly, a triumphal entry marked by poverty and weakness. He is the king of peace riding into the city of peace. And that's what you need to see really as we look through these three different scenes that make up our text this morning is that Jesus comes into Jerusalem as the king of peace and he comes into Jerusalem and as he tends to do he divides the people. If you've been with us in our study of Luke long enough, hopefully you've noticed that in the kingdom of Christ, there's no gray area. There's no neutrality. It's the ends of black and white. Students, what you need to know is Jesus keeps telling us in this gospel that there are only two responses you can ever make towards him. You can receive him by faith or you can reject him in unbelief. And both of those responses are going to come to us in our text this morning. And what I want you to see is really just the outcome of those responses that we'll find in this passage. You can kind of summarize what we're looking at this morning as the truth that Jesus' coming brings either joy or judgment. Jesus' coming will be a coming of joy for those who receive him. Jesus' coming, however, will be a coming of judgment for those that reject him. So kids, you may have been to a birthday party recently or not long ago, and maybe you received after you left the house or the place of the party, something like a party favor, and you looked in that little bag and and you saw quite a few uh, little goodies and treats or or candies. And there's a sense in which in our 21 verses, uh, we kind of open up, as it were, this goodie bag of truth regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have scenes, we have sayings, we have statements that impress upon us a striking truth, not just about who Jesus is, but uniquely in this text, how he feels towards his people. So if you wanted to know not just who Jesus is, but what his emotions are like towards his own, this is a good text for you this morning, or you might be in here this morning, and 
you're not a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus. This is a wonderful text that helps show you the significance of what it means to hear from Jesus and the significance of what it means to receive him or reject him. So we're going to walk through these three scenes under three simple statements about Jesus. Number one, he's the king who saves. Number two, he's the prophet who weeps. And number three, he's the priest who cleanses. He is our prophet, he is our priest, and he is our king. First, our king who saves. If you glance down at verse 28, Luke sets the scene for us on this great Palm Sunday. When Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Two weeks ago, we looked at the previous section when Jesus was giving the parable of the ten minas, this parable to his disciples about what it meant to live in faithfulness, waiting for his return. Now, we know that he was in Jericho at that time, probably at this wee man Zacchaeus' house, and that's about 17 miles northeast of Jerusalem. I told you two weeks ago, it's basically the distance between this church building and Princeton, Texas. So Jesus is moving from that area down towards Jerusalem. And notice how close he's come to Jerusalem just by verse 29. Luke says, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, to the mount called Olivet. Now we know that now, because of Bethphage and Bethany, he's within two miles of Jerusalem. Bethany was located on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives, if you've never been there before or seen pictures, it's about 2,600 feet in the air. It provides this unique look into not just the city of Jerusalem, but even to the Temple Mount as a whole. And so Jesus has now come within two miles of Jerusalem. And what he begins to do in these, as the scene unfolds is reveals more truth about who he is. He's not just the king of kings, but what kind of king is he? And first I want you to see that he's the sovereign king. Because if you just scan your eyes through the next few verses, you see Jesus has this interesting dialogue with two of his disciples. He says, okay, I want you to go down to this nearby village. There you're going to find a colt that's tied up. I want you to take it. Basically saying, this cult belongs to me. When the owners say, what are you doing with our cult? Tell them that the Lord has need of it. And sure enough, notice what happens in verse 32. So those who were sent went away and found it just as Jesus had told them. He is the sovereign king. It was just as he has told them it was going to be. So kids, when we talk about Jesus being sovereign, what we mean then is Jesus is in control. He's in charge. He knows all things and rules over all things. Not just in our lives, but of course in the universe as a whole. There's not one maverick molecule that exists in the universe outside of the control of Jesus Christ. So surely it's not surprising to us that he can find a cult that's never been ridden on before to ride into the city of Jerusalem. But students, you want to ask the question of why is it so important that he finds such a colt, such a, a donkey to ride into Jerusalem on. Well, it's fulfilling up all of these prophecies uh, in the Old Testament. You can all go all the way back to Genesis chapter 49. Jacob makes this prophecy of the king who was going to come from Judah. He was going to come riding on a donkey. And then we just read a few minutes ago more acutely because Matthew's gospel makes explicit 
what Luke's gospel here makes implicit, that this was, this riding on this cult, was to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, that the king was going to come into Jerusalem. So they were to rejoice, they were to shout aloud, because humble and mounted on a donkey is the king that they had been looking for. So he's the sovereign king that all of the Jews were looking for. But interestingly, they missed him, probably because he's not just the sovereign king, he's also the servant king. He doesn't come like a, a Roman general with this great brigade leading into the way of the city and following behind him, shouting as these soldiers, thousands would have done so in a Roman triumph. Well, who is shouting songs of praise? If you just look down at verse 36 and 37, the disciples placed their cloaks on the road, and as Jesus was drawing near on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice. Now, who are these disciples, of course? Well, it sure seems like it's more than just the 12 disciples that Jesus specifically chose. But don't you know that the ordinary disciple following Jesus at this time was someone who was forsaken, someone who was forgotten? The disciples themselves are full of fishermen, a tax collector, and a precious other few that none of us even often remember who they are. Riding on into the city, crying out shouts of praise as the king of David is coming into the city of David, which is interesting even in itself. If you flipped back to 2 Samuel chapter 15, you don't have to do that. You could read it later on today. It's this kind of harrowing account of God's King David, the one that was after his own heart. And if you remember the story in, in chapter 15, David is made to evacuate Jerusalem. And do you remember why? Because his son named Absalom He's conspired against David to steal the kingdom from his father. So off goes David, dejected, disappointed, ashamed. And verse 30 of 2 Samuel 15 says, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, with his head covered. And here comes the true son of David, the king from David's eternal line, coming down what? That very same slope now in victory, now in triumph. And notice what the disciples sing out in verse 37 through 38. They began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, students, I want you to notice it's the disciples who are singing and shouting these praises to Jesus. And that's important to note for two reasons. One is it's often misunderstood that it was the very same crowds that cried out, Hosanna, which means Lord save us. The very same crowds that shouted Hosanna on Palm Sunday were the ones that were crying, crucify him on Good Friday. But if you examine the Gospels closely, it's the multitude of disciples that are shouting Hosanna. These aren't just casual enthusiasts that finally the king has arrived in Jerusalem. No, these are wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ. And don't you know that it's only and always genuine disciples that rejoice in the King named Jesus Christ. It's only sincere followers of Jesus that ever overflow in this kind of exuberant praise towards the Lord. And it ought to be a point maybe of challenge or possibly even conviction for some of you in here this morning. Uh, when was the last time your joy in Christ overflowed in such a way? This kind of joy in Jesus is the ordinary disposition of a true follower of Jesus Christ. No matter the circumstances we find ourselves in, no matter the situation that God has placed us in, 
To love Jesus is to have joy in Jesus' kindness and kingship towards us. And of course, not everyone there was excited about what was going on. Because notice what we're told in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees were in the crowd, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. How dare they praise you in this way? Now, it's fascinating. This is the last time this Pharisee party shows up in Luke's gospel. You'll never find them again in the Gospel of Luke, this party of purity, the first century fundamentalists that couldn't respond with delight and joy to the king because all things weren't being done with decency and order. Rather, they were done out of the common custom of the day. Uh, These religious, self-righteous people couldn't stand this kind of exuberant exaltation of Jesus Christ. And maybe you've been in churches long enough to know that that still is true of self-righteous religious people today. Often looking down with sincere followers of Jesus, enraptured with minds and hearts of affection and love towards Christ as though thinking there's something that they are doing that is wrong. And they need to stop that. And so what does Jesus say? Look at verse 40. He answered, I tell you, if these, so my disciples, if they were silent the very stones would cry out. The stones are going to shout forth the praise of me, whether you want them to do it or not. And it could be that Jesus is actually saying, you know, this this idea that creation is going to join in the song of the king, and so the rocks are going to be caught up in this, the mountains and the seas and the forests and the glades and the valleys and the, the treetops are going to join in. He could be saying that. But actually what might be more likely is that it's an allusion to the fact that the Gentiles are going to praise this king named Jesus. And the reason we can say that is because Jews at this time, the Pharisees most particularly that Jesus is talking to, refer to Gentiles as dumb and dull stones. And here he says these stones are going to cry out, for the king has come, the king has come to save And we notice, secondly, Jesus is not the king who saves. He's also the prophet who weeps. Uh, Maybe, kids, you can think back with me on recent weeks or months where the holidays were going on, and maybe you went to vacation at your grandparents' house or someone else in your extended family. Maybe you rode on a plane. Maybe you rode on a car. And I'm sure, kids, somewhere along the way, maybe you asked your parents, you looked forward to the front of the car and next to you, seated to your mom or dad, and and said that great four-word question that all children seem to want to say to parents on such trips, are we there yet? And if you've been tracking in loose gospel, you might say, are we in Jerusalem yet? And our study, it's been since July of last year. In Luke's narrative, it's since the end of chapter 9, that he told us there in chapter 9, verse 51, that Jesus, with a face like flint, so he's determined to get to Jerusalem, Jesus himself says, to this destiny date with death in God's holy city. And finally, now, almost exactly ten chapters later, we have reached Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. And notice what he does. Look at verse 41 and 42. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. You know, one of the more exciting studies, uh, genuinely, in the Christian life is to study the truth of Jesus Christ, 
uh, what some theologians have called Christology in years and centuries past. And as we grow in Christ, we grow in our depth of understanding of who he is. And I wonder if in your understanding of Jesus, you have an understanding of Jesus as a sobbing savior towards sinners. Because the word here is weep. Uh, it's probably not strong enough here in the ESV. It connotes something much more like wailing. Jesus wailing as he comes into Jerusalem. Strikingly wailing over sinners he knows will reject him. I wonder if you might be in here this morning and you need to know that the Savior is wailing over you. A people who had every privilege, every opportunity, every chance, every logical reason to recognize the King had come. And yet they had missed him altogether. And so there is, of course, a time coming when Jesus will mete out his judgment on such people. He's going to prophesy about that in a minute. But then, like it is now, we live in this kind of overlap of the ages in which Jesus' heart towards sinners is manifested with this simple world, word, he wailed. And he wailed forth judgment even. Notice what he said. And see how personal it is. He said it's hidden from your eyes, but notice it's you're the one doing the rejection of me. For the days, verse 43 and 44, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and him, you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Do you feel it? It's like these hammer blows uh, to the soul of those who would have heard it at that time. Twelve times, kids, if you want to circle it in those two verses, at least in, in my translation, twelve times. He says, you or your. We have a prophecy here of the destruction of Jerusalem, which we know uh, happened in A.D. 70. Jerusalem was overturned. It was sacked. The temple was destroyed alongside with it. So Jesus is uttering with, with sobs a prophecy of the judgment that's going to fall upon the people of Jerusalem. And it's something with these 12 -fold, this 12-fold repetition of you or your that they in every way deserved because of their rejection. So do you see it? You can receive Jesus Christ like the disciples did with joy when he comes. Or you can reject him unto your judgment. He's the king who saves. He is the prophet who weeps. And thirdly, he's the priest who cleanses. You may have heard the name B.B. Warfield before. He was a great a theologian at Princeton Seminary in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So great was he and valiant for truth that he was nicknamed the Lion of Princeton. And yet he was a very compassionate and kind man that sometimes not everyone remembers. And you could kind of highlight that from the fact that while he and his wife were on a honeymoon, she was, she was if I remember rightly, struck by lightning as they were traveling in Europe and she remained all her days uh, a disabled wife towards Warfield, and so he cared for her every single day, refused to ever go further away from his home that would take him at least an hour away from his wife, and so the majority of his teaching career was spent kind of at Princeton around the corner, and then he rushed back to care for his wife, and in the silent hours, he would write voluminously uh, these articles on scripture and theology and truth, and one of his most famous articles is titled, The Emotional Life of Our Lord. Because what we always need to remember, don't we, students, think of this especially, that Jesus was an emotional Savior. Uh, kids, what we have in the Gospels is a 
picture of what perfect emotions look like. You have a prophet who weeps. And then what you get in this final scene in our text, a priest who rages. And so it's why even Warfield said in his article, perhaps no instance recorded in the Gospels is the action of our Lord's indignation more vividly displayed than in the accounts of the cleansings of the temple. Do you want to know what righteous anger looks like? Look at what comes in verse 45 and 46. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The importance of Jesus' cleansing of the temple you'll see when you realize that all four gospel authors include it in their account of Jesus' life. But curiously, Luke, our investigative historian, our investigative journalist that's with care, trying to construct this story of certainty for Theophilus, he has the briefest account of Jesus' cleansing by far. It's just really a verse and a half. He just kind of mentions it, even truncates some of the quotes of Jesus we find in other passages. So if you just fill it in a little bit, uh, we know from the other accounts is that this happened on the Monday of Passion Week. So we've moved on a day from when he entered into Jerusalem. Uh, we know that he came in the east gate of the temple into what was probably the court of the Gentiles. So if you want to think about a courtroom there at the temple to give you an idea of how big this was, it was 35 acres in size, this court of the Gentiles. And at the time, it was pretty common for people to be trading money and trading for animals. And these things were actually okay according to Scripture, because you needed the, the currency required for the temple tax, so there was kind of an exchange of money. You needed to have purified animals to offer for the sacrifices. That's why you came to Jerusalem anyway, so you could buy them there at the temple so you didn't have to drag them all the way through the sands and the desert as you made your pilgrimage towards Jerusalem. But then here comes Jesus, and he takes a whip, and he drives out all of these money changers, all of these lenders, all of these people selling things. And what does he say? Basically, you've missed the point. Uh, my house is a house of prayer. That's Isaiah 56, verse 7. You have turned my house into a den of robbers. That's Jeremiah 7, verse 11. And judgment's going to fall on the temple as a result. And so he goes about the temple with this whip, cleansing it, reforming it, purifying it for its great purpose. Now, what you need to recognize is that the average Jew at this time believed the Messiah was going to come and cleanse the temple. But he was going to cleanse the temple of Gentiles, of aliens, of foreigners, people who didn't belong there. But what does Jesus do? Instead of cleansing the temple of the Gentiles, he cleanses the temple for the Gentiles. And what you'll see in verse 47 and 48, as Passion Week continues, we'll pick up on this more, Lord willing, next week. Jesus basically takes up a residency of sorts within the temple. He is teaching there, and you'll see in verse 47, the chief priests and scribes, principal men of the people, they're seeking to destroy them. They want to put Jesus to death, but they don't know how to do it yet. Why? Look at the end of verse 48. All the people were hanging on his words. He is teaching. The king has finally arrived in the city in which he will be slain, and everyone is listening eagerly. Some are receiving him for their joy. Some are rejecting him unto their very judgment. 
I'm not so sure that they teach this lesson in history in school anymore, but of course years ago in history courses you would learn about Julius Caesar's march on Rome in 49 B.C., marching down the south parts or from the north down the south side of Italy to create and at least to initiate what became known as the Roman Civil War that great, gave great way to his great Roman Empire. And the first action of Julius Caesar was to come to the northern border of Italy at the time, which was the Rubicon River. And Plutarch, one of the ancient historians, said at the time, they come to this river and, and Julius Caesar looks out upon all of his army that's surrounding him and he lifts up his voice and shouts, the die is cast. And it's a phrase, the die is cast, or even crossing the Rubicon has become somewhat synonymous in our culture as passing the point of no return. And with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, he has indeed passed the point of no return. Because it's in five days' time, from at least the start of our text, that he's going to be crucified. Seven days' time that he's going to be resurrected. Teaching all the while in the days leading up to it in the temple. And what we're going to continue to see is how many people missed the coming of the king. And so what I want to do as we begin to close is Help us not miss the coming of the king. Maybe we can be ready for the king who has come and is coming again. And to do that, I want to just point out two things from this passage that might stir within us a desire to see the king in his glory and beauty and respond appropriately. Number one, rejoice in the peace of Christ's salvation. Rejoice in the peace of Christ's salvation. There's an interesting play on peace throughout the passage. Jesus goes into Jerusalem, which is the city of of peace. Jesus, as he goes down the Mount of Olives, hears his disciples saying, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. These words that even echo, you might remember, the angelic army of Luke chapter 2 when Jesus was born. Then Jesus himself says, if you look at it again in verse 42, as he wails over Jerusalem, had you known on this day the things that make for peace. Then what does he do? He goes into the temple, which was the place of peace for God's people where he dwelt among them. And prophetically what he is saying is Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and the temple along with it. The city of peace and the place of peace is going to go away. Why? Because the prince of peace has finally arrived. As Ephesians chapter 2 says, Jesus Christ himself is our peace. No longer are pilgrimages to Jerusalem necessary. No longer are temple taxes and sacrifices to be offered in the temple to find peace with God. And I wonder if in the course of your ordinary week or maybe recent months, uh, you feel this desire for peace. Sometimes it can be the case in, in my own home life, six little kids running around, always doing crazy different things, and eventually you kind of come to, at least I do, I come to something of a, a feeling on my inner man that says, I just want some peace and quiet. And there's a sense in which in our unbelief and, and sin and awareness of God's holiness and righteousness towards our own iniquities, that we just want peace with God. And we have it, the Bible says, through Jesus Christ, because the King has come into the city of peace to bring about the peace that only God can offer to enemies of Christ, to opponents of God like you and I. So I wonder if you have rejoiced 
in the peace of Christ's salvation. We said earlier that joy in Jesus is this ordinary disposition among God's people. So too then must be peace, harmony, unity, a calm mind and spirit among God's people as they rejoice in Jesus Christ. So, rejoice in the peace of Christ's salvation. Secondly and finally, believe in the day of Christ's visitation. Believe in the day of Christ's visitation. The king has finally come into Jerusalem. He had been journeying in Luke's narrative the way he's pieced it together there for so long to get to Jerusalem. And there's this interesting play that's going on within redemptive history and what Jesus is actually reenacting and doing. Because if you wanted to go home later today and open up the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel in 586 B.C., Jerusalem is sacked. Babylon comes in, takes God's people away to exile. And Ezekiel gets a, a, a vision of this sacking of Jerusalem. And it says that the glory of the Lord departed the temple and went up and rested on the Mount of Olives. And here we come, so many years and centuries later, to Jesus Christ, who the Bible says is what? The glory of the Lord coming down the Mount of Olives. Through the very gate that Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord depart. And even in Mark's gospel, there's this kind of enigmatic, mysterious conclusion to his account of Palm Sunday. You can go find that in Mark chapter 11. It says, Jesus, when it was night, so you just picture it's getting dark in and around Jerusalem. It says that Jesus just moseyed into the temple. He looked around. Then he left, walking back up the Mount of Olives in some ways, doing the exact same thing that Ezekiel had seen so many years before. Why? Because his people in Jerusalem missed it all together. They had not realized the king has come. So what did he say? Look at how verse 44 ends as he is weeping and prophetically saying this judgment upon Jerusalem. You did not know the time of your visitation. Let that not be said of you. You did not realize the time of my visitation. Do you not know that every time we gather on the Lord's day that through His Word and Spirit, Christ visits you? The glory of the Lord comes into God's house. Have you seen Him? Have you laid your crowns before Him? Have you fallen down in joy and reverence at this King who saves? Rejoice in Jesus, you receive Him unto your joy. You reject Jesus you will cast him away unto your very judgment. Don't miss this king today. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for your son. We thank you for his humility, for his meekness, that in gentleness he came as a king. So Father, we remember that even though he came into the city of Jerusalem on that day so long ago as a king of peace riding on a donkey. Your word tells us that there is a time yet coming where he will indeed come as a king on a war horse to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. Help us, we pray, to be found in Christ. To be those that have seen his glory and his beauty and have turned from our sin, have trusted him that we might know his peace everlasting and the forgiveness of sins that he alone can offer. And Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us